You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad yourself. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Oh boy, am what I do take now? Us off the, no, am I going to take us off the rails today? But I've been thinking about... Just don't very, get us canceled, please. No, no. Well, <laughs> you have full edit capability here. This is true. <laughs> um, so, okay, I've been thinking about one of the most fundamental concepts of identity and access management, or digital identity, whatever you want to call it, and it's the word trust. And what does the word trust mean? I'm going to get back to that, but I also was thinking about, I think it's the opposite of trust when it comes to identity, which is anonymity. And anonymity on the internet is more than just a minor thing. I mean, I think it's it's kind of like a fundamental concept. And you see what's going on with Twitter, right? And to me, Twitter exemplified not only, you know, not solely responsible, but kind of the cesspool of the internet, if you will. Right. And I'm not talking hey, we're about on Twitter. <laughs> we're on Twitter. <laughs> Check out our Twitter handle, by the way. Speaking of cesspools <laughs> at IDAC podcast. <laughs> How's that for a commercial? <laughs> but, it, and I think it's the fact, I think it's a not anonymity that drives a lot of it. I mean, I think at Twitter, like you have a lot of people who will be very bold in their own name. But a lot of us, like, you can't be too bold in your private, um, you know, in your communications that are in the public assigned to your true identity because you can wind up getting yourself fired. And I would say that makes up a large percentage of society. So people wind up creating these an- anonymous handles and going on whatever, you know, website has a comment section or on Twitter or something like that. And... They post these things. Now, my question to you, I'm going to give one more example before I I turn it over to you. But my question to you is going to be, is anonymity a good thing or a bad thing? Should it be eliminated? Should there just be one Jeff Stedman? Or should you also be able to create a Jeff Stedman um, anonymous account? So, you know, Joe Stedman. (laughs) And here's why I ask. So we all know that you... You ran a Chili's, right? And I was reading an article recently where it was there. It was about Olive Garden, and someone posted the question: "You know, is the is the unlimited breadsticks truly unlimited? You know, is there some point where you order too many breadsticks and they say no?" And a person got on there and said, "I work at Olive Garden, and if you were, I forget what the number was, honestly, because it was like so." outrageous like who the heck would order 12 baskets of breadsticks something like that like that's the cutoff point and they're probably not allowed to say that right that might be a fireable offense whether it is or not i don't know but i'm getting to the point that in that sense anonymity would be good that you could go out there and like share that information and not have to worry about it like having a blowback on you well, I think it's a good thing, and for the most part, it, sure, it's like anything else. There is downsides to anything, and for and second of all, well, first of all, the world is not ready for two Jeff Stedmans. Can barely handle one, so let's just get that clear right now. Um, I, you know, I get is and is 
being anonymous on the internet good holistically probably i try to i to get and i try to see the positive where i can i think of things like what's happening with governments maybe that have you know less than ideal free speech <laughs> uh, rules, right? Uh, being anonymous there is probably helpful, not only to get the word out, but maybe even for your own personal safety and security, you know, when it comes to voicing dissent, not every country has the same, you know, free speech that, that we do in the U S does free speech come without repercussions though? No, I think there are always a, you know, an action that can result from anything, any other action. So some people are brave enough to attach their name to it. Some people aren't for any you know reason. It could be safety, security, or maybe they just, you know, they are putting on a public persona versus what they think privately. So I don't, I mean, I don't know how to answer the question, <laughs> but then um, you were talking about trust and the opposite of trust being anonymous. I immediately went to deceit <laughs> as the opposite of trust and thinking it from a negative standpoint is okay. Well, if I trust so-and-so and we're, and we're an identity show, so Let's talk authentication, right? If you're you're doing an authentication, you're essentially trying to establish a trust between people. If you're trying to break that authentication, then you're trying to deceive the system, which probably means you are not the person that is the intended recipient of whatever that that uh, trust session is about. So, I don't know if they answered your question or not. That was a very existential of you, but. It's very existential overall, but I, I kind of feel like the authentication is kind of the middle of the chain because the authentication is proving you are the identity. But if you set up the identity in deceit, then you're authenticating a de deceptive identity. Yep. And I also thought about this trust component in terms of it's actually in two directions. It's um, the user trusting the organization that they're you know, a part of, or they're, they're, they have an identity in, and then it's the organization trusting the user that this is a real identity and the real person is assigned to this identity. And I guess that's where things like um, verifiable credentials come into play. So to me, when I was starting to think about that, it's like, well, I don't want to go through verifiable credentials to, I don't want to tie my Twitter account or, my Cura account to my driver's license because I might want to say something that, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't want my employer to be like, Hey, you know, you can't say something like that. You can't have that public opinion. So that was kind of my thought. And then I thought, you know, in terms of trust, cause we, this comment came up, I think maybe on our previous episode where we talked about, you know, the organization's, becoming the identity provider and would people um, trust that organization? You think about governments or you think about big tech or corporations, like who trusts those entities? Do people trust the United States government or some state government to be actually, a, you know, a, a credential or a, an identity that they actually trust? Well, the answer is probably every answer in between, right? You know, and I don't even think that it is a binary decision. I think it's anywhere from zero to 100%, maybe even negative number <laughs> from a trust perspective is you, you definitely do not trust, right? You know, these types of entities or whatever it might be. So I think zero it's all trust. over the place. Yeah. <laughs> zero trust, negative trusts, uh, you know, positive trust, you know, whatever the right uh, terminology would be. But 
I don't, you know, only, only, uh, what is it? Only a Sith deals in black and white. So I think there are tons of shades of gray in between. And I think when we start talking about sort of verifiable credentials and, you know, this idea of really kind of like a self-sovereign identity where I can only share the parts of my identity that are relevant to the, to the decision that needs to be made, whether it's an authentication decision or authorization decision, you know, it's kind of like the, that, you know, the, the example I've used in the past of, well, I know it to get into this bar. I need to be 21 to prove that I am of age to drink. I show them my license and the bouncer or whoever is checking ID validates that, that I have the correct birth date to coincide with establishing that I am 21 years old or older. At the same time, they're also saying my home address, my height, my weight, eye color, a whole bunch of stuff that isn't relevant to that decision. And I think this is sort of uh, where the direction of the industry is heading when when we start talking about you know managing your own data data from an identity perspective is all you really needed to tell the person was, you know, the, all they really care about is, are you 21 or older? And if the answer is yes, everything else is irrelevant. The answer is no. Like still, all the answers, all the other things are irrelevant, right? Um, so I think what we're talking about really here is sort of managing, you know, to some degree, those, those credentials, whether it's verified or not. We're starting to get into layers of trusts. You know, sure, you can go and establish a fake identity, uh, it is identity theft. We have a lot of reliance on, okay, well, if I went and gotten a, a driver's license and I was able to fake that, that means now I can fake something else and then fake something else. And you sort of like build this, you know, house of lies <laughs> or a house, <laughs> a house of cards that might collapse, right? If one of those identities gets, gets, um, you know, found out or whatever it may be. So um, I don't know so where I was going with that, but no, that's, what that's, I was thinking. That, that's great dialogue. And I know we're not going to solve this here. But for anyone sure. listening, if, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> but anyone listening, um, you know, comment on when Joe, when Jeff, when Joe, hey Joe, uh, <laughs> when Je- Jeff puts out the um, the LinkedIn, you know, post that the episode is out, go out there and put a comment. Um, I'd love to hear people's feedback or their thoughts on trust and identity. Yeah, be curious. I think uh, plus it'll be good fodder for, you know, another episode where we kind of talk through like, here's what we heard from people, you know, in the industry and kind of what their thoughts were. Um, So I think I know where you were going when you started talking about verified credentials. (laughs) Um, I think what we wanted to cover today was Microsoft Entra. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Microsoft Entra came out. uh, Well, I guess it was announced a few months ago. I thought this is an episode that is a long time coming is to sort of explain what it is, what it's about, and hopefully demystify some of it. We're not going to solve all the answers and all the questions and all that stuff today, but at least hopefully give people kind of an overview of kind of what it is and give people some information around that. And uh, there's probably no better person that we could bring on. And his name is Eric Woodruff. He's a product technical specialist at Semperis. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we've had Gil from Semperus back on, I think it was uh, September of last year, 2021, episode number 110. Uh, we're recording episode 191. So it's been, uh, been a little while since we had someone on from Semperus. Uh, and we're going to talk about Microsoft Entry. You're going to kind of hopefully help clear it up in my mind as to what it is and more, maybe more importantly, what it's not. 
But we've got tradition around here. You know, when someone joins us for the first time, I like to find out what their identity origin story is. How did you get into identity? Is it something that you chose or did it choose you? Um, that's a, a good question. And uh, I I feel like my career is almost two parts um, for the, the first uh, half. So actually, when I started uh, my IT career, I was a Unix engineer back in the uh, late 90s during the dot-com boom. Um, and then fast forward a bit as that whole bubble kind of sort of collapsed. Uh, I started working with Active Directory for a bit at Time Warner. And then I spent a good majority of my career uh, at the New York State uh, courts. And working there, I, I would say I was a generalist, uh, working within the Windows sort of server ecosystem. Uh, but when I started there, it was a big e-directory group-wise shop. Um, and by the time I left, uh, about 15 years later, um, you know, it was Azure Active Directory, Active Directory, well, you know, going to the cloud and whatnot. And I think just looking over the years at uh, the transformation there, um, I definitely um, had identity choose me. Uh, and I guess I'd say that because as Active Directory became more and more important, we moved away from eDirectory and whatnot. Like someone sort of had to, uh, you know, take reins there. Um, and, you know, securing identity, uh, when I was there, I, I never thought of myself as a security person, right? I, I thought of myself as like an infrastructure generalist, whatnot. Um, so, uh, but then I actually left the uh, state and, uh, spend a bit of time working at Microsoft. And, and when I started there, I'd say that's what, uh, the sort of chapter two of my career, um, you know, started, um, and, there, I would say I chose identity. So uh, I was a premier field engineer and we were given sort of a luxury to pick out of like the Azure suite of things as to what you wanted to focus on. Um, and just as I started to dig into like MFA and conditional access and other identity technologies, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and so since then, I've uh, you know worked in a few other identity roles. Uh, and definitely, though, I find identity interesting. And Honestly, I think I would say that only then is it when I, I would consider that I became an identity practitioner strong enough to like call myself one. And now you're with Semperis. I guess for those who aren't familiar with what Semperis does, what's the you know 30 seconds, maybe 60 second long elevator ride pitch so people can kind of be aware of you know what it is that you guys do? Yep. So, um, you know, at Sempris, we have a few different products, uh, mostly revolving around hybrid identity, which, um, you know, the episode that Gil was on, uh, you know, you guys spoke about that. But, uh, right. So talking about Active Directory and Azure Active Directory, but primarily focused on Active Directory, um, there's one product we have that's an ITDR platform. Um, and it's really, you know, securing Active Directory, and also extending that out now to the hybrid identity in Azure AD. Um, and the other piece of software we have, which I actually wish I could go back to places I used to work, and I know this sounds salesy, but we never did uh, um, disaster recovery testing of Active Directory at a lot of places because, I mean, it's it's a huge pain. And, uh, you know, I started here in August and actually seeing our other product, uh, you know, do Active Directory restores. Um, yeah, it's uh, ADFR. It's a pretty pretty cool piece of tech. So, um. yeah, I feel like uh, disaster recovery of AD is is where it's at, man. If you're if you consider yourself a Microsoft shop, you better be doing it because 
a ransomware uh, attack's goal in life would be to own your Active Directory. They own your Active Directory. You are in big trouble if you truly are a Microsoft shop. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, it, I, I thought it's interesting in listening to some other podcasts about, um, you know, ransomware attacks. I mean, it always goes back to, right, like, regardless of how the threat actor initially got in, it's when they owned Active Directory that everything just completely fell apart. So That's true. That's true. Yeah, I've seen it in my, my own professional experience. So, uh, But we did not bring you on to talk about disaster recovery. We're, we're trying to learn about this Microsoft Entra, and um, we'd love it if you would, you know, kind of educate us on it. I know Entra is really like an umbrella for multiple tools, but whatever you know about it, that would be great to kind of share with us and the listeners. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I would say Entra, uh, depending on what angle you look at it, it, it may be marketing. Um, but there's also the, the sort of suite of technologies under it, right? So, I mean, the, the piece of Entra that most folks are familiar with, or probably most familiar, I should say, is um, Azure Active Directory. Uh, and then, so there's a history uh, about a couple of years ago, Microsoft took all their security stuff and they renamed everything to like Defender for X, like Defender for Cloud, their CASB solution became Defender for Cloud Apps, et cetera. Uh, and then they did a similar thing in the spring of 2020 where all their compliance and data governance uh, became Microsoft Purview. Uh, and then it was this June that they you know, announced Entra. Um, and yeah, when you saw the announcement, it was really taking Azure Active Directory and also now bundling in um, Cloud Knox as Entra permissions management. So that's their uh, Kim or Keem, you know, CIEM uh, solution there. Um, and then also uh, Entra verified ID, which when it was in public preview was Azure Active Directory uh, verifiable credentials. So Azure AD has been around for a long time. So is it just that Azure AD is now bundled under Entra or there's some new features that make it? Because, I, I mean, as an old school uh, um, Active Directory person, it's like you've got the Active Directory users and computers, which is not an end user facing um, administration tool. But, you know, those of us who used it over the years grew to love it and hate it. Um, but it gives you ultimate flexibility. But I, I kind of felt like Azure has a lot of similarities in terms of its admin focus rather than kind of an end user focus. Um, so I guess, let me put my question like this. Is Entra Azure AD meant to, you know, replace having something like SailPoint or, an, you know, an IGA or an ITSM tool for managing access? Uh, so given the, the classic consulting answer there is it depends, right? So, um you know, there are components that, that existed even before Entra uh, for identity governance and uh, sort of, you know, the, the end user aspect of things with uh, like a My Access portal for uh, entitlement uh, requests. Um, what, what I think is interesting is within, it's probably been the past two or three weeks, noticing that um, when they added new features to Azure Active Directory identity governance, it also is now being renamed to Entra Identity Governance. 
it's it's not like out there. Uh, if you go look at like the Entra sort of suite, um, but if you go look at the docs, it still refers to as you know Azure Active Directory Identity Governance. But um, you know, I, I take to your question. I mean, I, I think they're definitely making a push. Um, you know, as far as like identity governance goes, right? And uh, they've certainly come a long way, uh, at least in the past few years, especially. Uh, but you know, I, I'd say the primary focus just seems targeted at least uh, with getting rid of MIM, FIM, ILM uh, for those customers. Well, that's so. So to me, that's that's ultimately the most important thing to most folks who are in our industry with regards to Azure AD is all right in the um, on-prem world, I had those products you just talked about and what, what's my equal in the Azure world. So maybe you'd talk a little bit about for those who don't know what MIM, FIM, ILM are, you know, kind of that, you know, approach that Microsoft took and then, you know, what, are the um, the analogous platforms or tools in the Azure world? Yeah, I mean, so MIM, which was FIM, and then ILM, um, right, was sort of their their sync engine tool. Uh, and there's also a web interface that most may find a bit clunky. That's right, uh, connected to SharePoint. Um, you you need like a PhD to operate MIM. I've pri- I, I'm proud that I've never actually dealt with MIM, uh, and will admit that I'm not super deep with it. But um, yeah, you know, MIM was a lot of like we're we're bringing in uh, you know uh, user information from an HCM. It was uh, you know self service password reset. Uh, it also had some you know PAM uh, components to it, um, and. You know, some of that is a bit scattered through Azure Active Directory. And I'd say, you know, there, there's certainly some people out there who are like, well, where is the, you know, cloud version of MIM, right? Um, but if you look at Azure Active Directory, self-service password reset has been out there for uh, quite a long while, right? Um, I think a lot of the functionality of MIM, though, with the, uh, you know, user lifecycle workflows and, um, you know, entitlement management and all that sort of stuff is what's primarily getting pushed into, um, you know, Entra identity governance. So. so I kind of feel like, um, you know, when you think about identity governance, it, the key is answering the question of who has access to what, and it's really like two parts. It's the provisioning side of, you know, in other words, defining who should have access. That would be your workflows and everything where you assign access to people and then provision it to some endpoint like Active Directory or some application. But then there's the actual, what do people actually have, right? So we're, we're pushing all this out to an endpoint. Now we're pulling it back. Some funny business may have happened behind the scenes, right? That we should be able to now pick up and say, hey, how do all these accounts have these extra privileges or who created these accounts because we don't recognize the account QA test one, two, three. Um, to me, what what MIM always was able to do is only that first part, you know, give you a web-based tool to manage giving access to people or taking it away and then provisioning it. So, and I, I kind of always thought of MIM doing that via some kind of like directory synchronization. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say now with um, 
enter that. I mean, they, they have access reviews out there, right? So you, you can have your certifications or attestations or however you want to put it. Um, whether it's maybe as robust as SailPoint, um, you know, I suppose I won't. I, I don't know SailPoint enough to sort of make a strong comment there. Um, but it, it definitely is primarily targeted still at like the, uh, I'd say the, the Microsoft um, ecosystem. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, I think to me, this is a kind of my perspective, right? Is that there's no way it could be caught up with SailPoint. SailPoint has been doing this for over a decade. Right. Um, and so you can't just catch up overnight like that, but that, okay. So that's the first tower that we've been talking about is this, um, identity management. If you use the old school term, um, the second tower was Keem, or as we've been <laughs> schooled on recently when we had Paul on the show last week, Kim. Um, and that's the old CloudNox tool, right? So Microsoft acquired that product. When you're using CloudNox, do you feel like you're in Azure? Is it like the same user interface and things like that? No. no. So with, um, with CloudNox, the the first round of integration. I mean, I, there is definitely done some work on the back end, but uh, when you go to the Entra portal um, and you click on CloudNox, it opens like a new tab that is basically what feels like CloudNox was. So, um, okay. Like a totally separate application. They like basically, yeah. but that in some ways is a good thing because to bring over all that functionality, um, and try to fit it into the existing framework, that'd be a major ordeal in itself. Um, talk to us a little bit about what CloudNox does um, so that users who aren't familiar with, with that would uh, have some baseline understanding. Yeah, so, I mean, right, that's your, your cloud infrastructure entitlement management and uh, to the, the Kim versus Keem uh, a thing. I, I feel like it's similar where I always thought it used to be Seam and then at some point I was told it's now Sim and that's so we don't confuse it with Siam and, you know, it goes on and on. But, um, you know, to, to your question, I mean, yeah, right, so I, I think of in, in the Azure world, but it's not just Azure specific that, uh, you know, identity would tend to focus on, um, you know, things that are, I guess, closer to its heart, right? And you'd see a lot of organizations who may uh, have a bunch of subscriptions or if it's AWS accounts or, or whatnot out there, right? And they kind of delegate off the, uh, you know, administration of, you know, who has access to what out there. Um, and and to me, I mean, I, th I think, you know, there's more like the, I guess I'd say the philosophical piece of, um, you know, does control over access to that belong under like the identity umbrella, uh, which I feel like uh, your Kim solutions are kind of bringing it back here. Um, but it's also to help govern that, right. To make sure that it's the, who has access to what, um, you know, there's the just in time piece for, you know, at the right time. Um, and also there's, you know, what I'd say is similar to like access reviews out there, right. Making sure that, um, you know, you don't have privileges just hanging around, um, you know, makes you think of old file servers or something, right? Where you'd go look and everyone has permissions to everything and nobody can ever make what's what or what. So, yeah. So, okay. So the first piece was Azure, second or Azure AD. Second piece was CloudNox. 
the third piece is verified credentials, right? And yep. what's the what's the company line on that product? I mean, what what is that all about? So, I mean, I would I would say verified ID is the area I um, have had the least focus. Um, just, I mean, to me, having worked more with uh, you know customers, I guess out in the field, uh, especially when it's more into like delivery consulting role, um, you know, you tend to be more focused on like the issues at hand um, where. Uh, you know, in my opinion, verified credentials and, uh, you know, decentralized identity and all that feels more like future when you've got people who, you know, are, you, you still have issues with basic things like, right, um, phishing resistant MFA. Um, but it is it is their, you know, decentralized ID sort of uh, product out there. Um, and when it was announced and even under public preview, right, they, Microsoft has been, I think, I think interestingly good at, um, you know, running sort of hackathons to try to get people like thinking about, uh, you know, like what can we do with this? Right. Um, but I also know that there's some folks who sort of look at it as like a solution where the, the problem hasn't really been defined yet. So, yeah, it seems to me that, um, Microsoft is making investments in identity, whether it's going out and purchasing kind of leading edge products or, you know, developing products themselves in-house based on, you know, Azure AD or like the verified ID piece, which you just described. I'm wondering, you go to a lot of the Microsoft partner conferences, right? Talk to us a little bit about where they're heading with these products, at least what what information is being shared with the public. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, uh, I think if you look at cloud, right, um, there's a lot of times where it's that AWS may, you know, trump Microsoft relative to, um, you know, IaaS or PaaS. Um, uh, I, I strongly feel like Microsoft is trying to position themselves from, I mean, not just an identity, but also a, a security aspect as being like, they're like, we're your go-to for multi-cloud. One-stop shop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that's a recurring theme. We've had um, a lot of folks on the podcast recently talking about this con- this idea of converged identity, which is really taking the components, which were these pillars of identity management, and offering at some level all of them. So maybe you grew up as an access management vendor, but now you're offering lifecycle and privilege access management, or Maybe you started out privilege access management. And now you're dipping your toe into these other areas. Um, it definitely feels like Microsoft wants to be that one-stop shop. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and honestly, I think to sort of try to pull that off, you you need to be one of the big sort of players out there. Whether it's you know, I mean, there's the big three, right? Um, and they seem to be positioning themselves. Uh, I guess I'd say well uh, relative to to be in like that, that one-stop shop. So who, who do you point to as the big three? I, oh, so uh, the others be Google and um, AWS. Okay. Google, Amazon, Microsoft, in terms of providing cloud services to enterprises. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess when I say that, I mean, big three and big enough that, um, right. I know on one of the episodes, uh, I think you, you know, talked about how, um, 
you know, Okta sort of tried their hand at uh, IGA, right? Um, and this this is no knock on on Okta or anything, but just I think Microsoft has the sheer weight of their services. Also with Office 365, um, I mean, you talk to a lot of customers who uh, they they want like that Azure AD thing. They're at a 365 shop, and you're like, you you already have it, right? So just just the way it kind of is sort of out there, whether you you know it or not sometimes, and, and that weight of their the, the company. Yeah, I listened, listened to a podcast with Satya Nadella. Actually, I had listened to it yesterday. It's called the Tools and Weapons Podcast for anyone who's interested. But he was making the case about, you know, you've got to continue to innovate. You've got to continue to disrupt or someone's going to eat your lunch. And so while Microsoft is the 800-pound gorilla that doesn't mean someone couldn't sneak in. You know, you mentioned Okta. They didn't try their hands in lifecycle management. They are actively trying their hands in lifecycle management. You know, they're building their platform. Um, and so, you know, I, look, Microsoft has been around for like 40 years or something. It's like, like some mind-boggling number. Um, you know, people have preconceptions of, of Microsoft. I think they've become... they've um, what do you call it? Reinvented themselves, I guess, if you will. Um, with Nadella as the CEO, I think he really shook things up. Um, but I think that you know he's right. If they're not going to continue to innovate and disrupt, you know, even their their core products, people start to question. Hey, can I do this better, cheaper? Um, you know, things that companies used to get money for now you can get for free. Right. So do they fall in love with making money on certain things so much that they don't adapt to the market where maybe something's becoming free? So um, last question for you on this topic is just around, you know, I meet with a lot of CISOs and um, program managers, security folks who say we're a Microsoft shop. Right. So they're, they're buying the E3, E5 licenses to manage everything. Um, they have very few, usually very few applications that fall outside of the Microsoft ecosystem. You know, they might be using Microsoft CRM, Microsoft Dynamics for ERP. You know, they're they're like all in. Of course, they're they probably have some best of breed cloud solutions, but you know, you, these are shops where they are doing things Microsoft way. My question for you is, from an IAM perspective, um, do these folks also need um, IAM tools beyond what's available with Entra? Um, you know, I, I guess I'd say it, it's back to the classic. It depends, right? Um, I mean, I, I've seen some things, uh, some interesting, uh, you know, IAM tools for like healthcare, uh, you know, also for K-12. Um, but I mean, you see it go go both ways. I've had customers that have, uh, you know, stuck with Azure Active Directory uh, for K-12 and, you know, they're, they're federating Google Workspace back to it. Uh, I know all their students are using it. But, you know, you also see some interesting, uh, I'd say, you know, uh, technologies developed out there uh, for more of those. I don't know if I'd say they're fringe cases, right? There's tons of healthcare out there, but um, I can't think of the name. There's a company that sort of is specialized in, um, you know, authentication for 
you know, healthcare providers, like, you know, you're, you're on the floor, nurses, doctors, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it may or may not sort of satisfy your needs and, and ultimately, right. Each organization needs to, I mean, I think take a good look at, um, you know, how they operate, what they have, um, and, and also, uh, you know, put, put aside maybe their, their fan, uh, you know, personness, uh, just whether they like or dislike Microsoft, or I guess I wouldn't be fan person this, but, <laughs> of, but <laughs> that's a, I feel like that's a classic, uh, consulting answer where I didn't actually really answer anything. So it depends, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, you bring up the, I, I think this is kind of one of the undertones that I'm, as I'm listening here is preconceived notions, right. Around capabilities and products and vendors and, some people are pro Microsoft, some people are pro, not pro Microsoft, right? Or Apple or Google or AWS. Every product has its fans and its detractors. And I think what we sometimes get stuck into is we used the product 15 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. And it is not the same product. Yeah. Uh, you know, things move forward. I don't think anybody is really in the business of putting out bad products, or at least they hope that they aren't. <laughs> and they're always trying to improve. The challenge is, is do, you know, does your business objective or your technical objective align with what the capabilities of the products? You know, if we talked about, you know, Microsoft 20 years ago, or Okta, or Ping, or SailPoint for that example, right? Any of these kind of bigger identity vendors that are out there, their products were not as capable 20 years ago. They have all gotten better. They're not perfect, and they're still not the answer for everybody. There are still use cases that they're just not good at. I think one of the chief knocks, for example, on Microsoft is that it's great when you're in the Microsoft ecosystem, and then it starts to fall apart pretty quickly once you leave the Microsoft ecosystem. And so people look for alternatives around that, and they sort of like, you know, they get this bad taste in their mouth where it's like, oh, that thing sucked. We hated it, right? <laughs> and I'll never <laughs> use it again. And in the meantime, they're probably doing themselves a disservice because it could be the right fit. I mean, I see a lot of companies who, you know, they they have Office 365 and they're you know using Microsoft, but they just like don't want to use Azure for single sign-on and for MFA. And it would be so much easier if they did. You know, there maybe there's other technical issues where they just can't or won't do it or you know whatever it might be. But I always find it interesting when I run into those clients who are very heavy into Microsoft, for example. And they use something completely different that is totally in the sweet spot of what they should be using Microsoft for. Yeah. I don't yeah, know if that's I mean, something that you see. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I see, I've seen the spectrum. I mean, I, I think you're hitting on an interesting point in that uh, definitely as uh, technologies evolved, um, it's more difficult these days to have technology drive business decisions than business drive technology. But, I think a lot of us tech folks still want it where technology is driving business. Um, but no, I mean, I've, I've seen, I've done workshops where like the second you say hello, they're like, I hate Microsoft. And especially when you worked for them, it's, uh, yeah. it, it's a difficult conversation to right, try to be like, well, you know, I hope you don't personally hate me. Right. I'm just here to try to help. <laughs> You, yeah, nice going, Eric. Yeah, you spent a ton of money on on you know Office three sixty five, right? And you have Azure AD. Like, let's see what we can do with with what you've got. So, mm -hmm. but. and we're talking about Microsoft. You know, I hear the same thing about Oracle, and you know, we would never wish Oracle identity management on anybody. Okay, well, you know what? 
it, you know, all things being said, it's still a pretty good product, especially if you use it where it's supposed to be used. It's like anything else, right? If you have one product, and you try to make it do more than what it's designed to do. Of course, it's going to struggle. It's not designed for that, right? It's like uh, having the, uh, you know, the label on the shampoo bottle. Do not drink this. It's there because somebody tried to drink it at some point, <laughs> right? There should be like a, 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 you know, a nutrition label or a warning on IT products, you know, Hey, just because you've got MIM doesn't mean that it should be your entire identity and access management platform, <laughs> right? <laughs> Something like that. Um, we've been talking a kind of a, a lot here about Entra. I guess if you had to sum up, you know, what people need to think about when they, when it comes to Entra, like what are, what's like the main takeaway that somebody should come off with that? Um, you know, I mean, I, I think it's um, really focusing on uh, the, the sort of components of it, right? So to, to me in particular, I guess I'd say uh, it's the Azure, Azure, Azure Active Directory piece of it. Um, and if you, in particular, are a O365 or M365 customer, right, um, looking at how, uh, you know, you may own a lot of stuff. One of the things I would audit Azure Active Directory uh, environments a lot. Um, and what you would come across again and again and again are customers who, uh, they have no idea what they own. Um, right. And some, they may have something else deployed that they want to get rid of. Um, some, it's just, they, they don't even know it's, it's out there and it is a lot of stuff, right? Uh, it's like trying to boil the ocean sometimes, but, um, you're just, you know, leveraging, leveraging what you may already own. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the important part. Like, you may already get yeah. a lot of this stuff through your your licensing. Why not take advantage of it? I mean, you know, if you're looking for the right way to do things, it's I, I think you have to leverage. You know, what do you have today that you that you could leverage versus what are the gaps and potential costs? Yeah. Right. If you're already paying for something, you might as well try to get the most out of it. Um, all right, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this conversation. But before we go, we were kind of talking before uh, we hit the re- the old record button here. And we started talking a little bit about video games. Um, I've got I got one I want to ask you to share if you don't mind. You, you mentioned you had a tattoo, yeah. Um, which I'm going to guess is the answer to my question, which is what is your favorite classic video game? And I guess uh, Jim, you kind of came up with this question before you answer, Eric. Define classic. Like, what does classic mean in this context? Hmm. So what I was thinking was a video game that you went somewhere and either got in or stood in front of maybe at like a pizza shop or something and you put coins into it to play it. Yeah. That's, that's what I had in mind. Some people might be like, what the heck is he talking about? A lot of people are like, what are you talking about? They don't remember arcade machines and pumping quarters into those things. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, that's what I had in mind, but I look, go ahead and answer it. However you like. All right, Eric, Uh, go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose that it'd be, classic in the sense of the series of uh legend of zelda so um but when i mean the the first uh zelda came out i was way too young to um understand what was going on but i i watched my my dad play it um but my favorite in the series would not be considered classic at least at least not breath of the wild uh that or honestly twilight princess i also really really enjoyed so um, but they're each game in the series is so unique. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to sort of compare them all, but they've done a pretty good job of really kind of varying 
not only like the stories, but also the actual the artistic style of the series yeah. for Legend of Zelda. I mean, yeah. most people kind of think about it of, you know, back in the day, Link and the Master Sword and the Triforce, right? And sort of like this 2D top down, you know, scrolling sort of adventure type thing. And then you look at something like on Nintendo Switch, Breath of the Wild, which is like this masterpiece of an like an open world yeah. and intricate systems. And it's like, oh, you see that mountain in the distance? You can go there and you can climb it if you've got enough, you know, strength or energy to like to get up the hill. I mean, it's it's amazing how far it's come. And then in between then you've had things that have been more stylistically like cartoon versus more like a video game and like right. cell based shading and things like well, that. I, I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna I mean with Wind Waker, I'd say honestly, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm a Nintendo fanboy, but there's always been the knock on them that everything's underpowered. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes it seemed like they did that because that's the only way they could make the game function. <laughs> well, you know, it's smart, though. I mean, yeah. for whatever reason, it still looks great by any yep. standards. I mean, you know, is it full motion video and, you know, sort of cutting edge, um, you know, reflections and ray trace graphics, right? <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. No, but it looks really good. And, it, yeah. and as if it performs really well, right? That's, you know, probably the most important thing. Uh, all right. So you got um, what, what was your choice again, Eric? Which which Zelda? Uh, I'll, I'll go with uh, Twilight Princess. Twilight Princess. All right, Jim, what's your uh, favorite uh, old man video game stand up? Old in man pizza video parlor? game. Well, it's actually when I played it in a pizza parlor, but it was sit down. So it was a car game uh, called Spy Hunter. Spy Hunter. Someone brought it up on one of our, our uh, project calls the other day. And he's like, oh, you know, like reminds me of Spy Hunter. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I, I love that game. Mm-hmm. You could do like the oil slick. You could do the big cloud of smoke. And then you had to dock yourself into the semi, the, um, the semi. Yeah. I mean, yep. uh, for my money, that game was, and then we had the sit down one to me. It was like, you felt like you're driving a real car. Think about that, that, that total 2d, uh, view, but it just, yeah. So that plus a super classic, you know, intro sound kind of theme that do, 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 I mean, just, I was going to do, I was going to do the, uh, what you just did, but I was afraid we get a strike. Well, I did it so poor, so poorly that no one would ever be able to recognize it in the real world. So I think we're probably okay. Um, all right. So for myself, I guess technically it is a classic. It has been around for 18 years. World of Warcraft. I still play it to this day. I've been playing it for 18 years. Um, I am one of those nerds that back in the day stood in line to get different expansion packs as they came out. And uh, yeah, it is still my one of my main drugs of choice when it comes to uh, hitting the video game. And, uh, you know, it's expansion week. Dragon uh, Dragon Niles just came out. So, of course, I've got to check that out when I get time. I don't have as much time as I used to. So, uh you know, not necessarily into the whole raiding thing. Uh, my wife and I used to be in a raiding guild. So, yeah, we were at World of Warcraft house, you know, for a while <laughs> there. But um, what was 18 that one? years for one video game is pretty darn good. What was that one video that was on YouTube and they were on a raid and like the one guy just like goes More off? Dots. What's that? <laughs> More dots. Yeah, there were, uh, there's a couple famous Warcraft clips. There's one with uh, they're going into a raid against a dragon called Anixia, and basically the encounter is is you've got 50 people on your side and then this dragon who spawns a bunch of little dragon whelps and they the idea is really is, is they tend to overwhelm your group and you end up dying when Anixia takes her deep breath and sort of wipes out the raid and you have this classic raid leader you know, you know kind of yelling out more dots damage over time which basically means more damage uh, you know onto the different things and, and handling the whelps and 
know, ad control, stuff like that. So see, now I'm nerding out about World of Warcraft. Uh, and the other one is Leroy Jenkins. Where yeah, the guy Leroy just char- Jenkins. That's what I was trying to think yeah. of. Yeah. He charges into a room and like they're like preparing for like this thing. And, and I read that this was more like a stage thing. It's not actually something that actually happened, like just off the cuff. But they're like trying to like figure out how to tackle this room and the character of Leroy Jenkins just he, he comes up on comms on voice chat and he's like he just yells his name, Leroy Jenkins, and he just runs <laughs> right into the room. He ruins their whole plan. And ruins the whole plan and just kind of kills himself. And uh, he's become a very popular cult- uh, you know, c- cultural icon in the game. And it's also stretched outside of the game. So when you hear someone say, say Leroy Jenkins, they're basically just charging into battle without any really thought. Yeah, and ruining everybody else's like well-laid-out plan. Anyway, you have to go into YouTube and search Leroy Jenkins if you don't know what we're talking about. Watch this video. It's hilarious. Yeah. Even it's if pretty- you don't play video games. Um, all right. I'm going to, before we, I start nerding out even more about it. Um, <laughs> we'll go ahead and wrap up for this week. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for being part of this. Um, we'll have links to yourself on uh, LinkedIn for people to kind of connect and reach out if they've got questions. Uh, I know you also had a blog, Eric and identity, Eric and identity.com. Yep. Um, I guess what's the two second sort of, what is that? That, that is uh, my, Microsoft identity, uh, nerding out. So it's, it's mostly technical content, uh, without, you know, various Azure AD related things. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. So definitely a good read. And, uh, you have been posting content, which is great. <laughs> so I try, I try. It's, a, it's a lot of work to, to <laughs> yeah. write. <laughs> And that's why we do a podcast. <laughs> um, so I'll have a link to that in our show notes. I'll also have a link to Semperis, S-E-M-P-E-R-I-S.com, mm-hmm. where you can learn more about uh, what Eric and the fine folks over there are, are working on, as well as a link to Microsoft Ventra if you want to read the company line and kind of what that is all about from the Microsoft perspective, as well as links to Jim and I on LinkedIn. Uh, definitely looking for always for you know uh, feedback on what you liked about the show, topics, things you want to see us cover in the future, you know, things like that. Definitely hang us up on uh, LinkedIn and be happy to take that under advisement. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to be it for this week. You can find us on the web, identityatthecenter.com. We're on Twitter so far. <laughs> the dumpster fire that that has turned into at IDAC Podcast. And uh, with that, I'll go ahead and leave it. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.